Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Arsenal lose nil-nil at West Ham, and if you thought that was boring, wait till you see what we have cooked up. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I am not joined by Paul. I am not joined by Clive. I am joined by Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. So, uh, Scott will be along with a statistical analysis of the match. Uh, Mainly, we will be looking at the goals, um, and then Clive has promised he will jump in later uh, to rescue Tim from having to have a one-on-one conversational about the Arsenal with just little old me. Um, so if you don't like my opinions, oh boy, this is not going to be a fun one. Anyway, Tim, uh, first of all, how was the trip to West Ham? Um, fairly average, really. <laughs> how is the new ground? Is, is, I mean, is, is it kind of a, a pale pale comparison to the to the bowling ground as they said yeah yeah it's it's very very weird i mean i i'm not going to say anything original about this because everyone's got it pretty much spot on it's it's a nice arena but it's just not a football ground like you're miles away from the pitch there's really odd features like between the away fans there's kind of some away fans in the you know in the upper tier although it's not tiered and then there's like a massive trampoline that separates you from the lower tier it's it's very, very weird, and you're you're set very, very far back, and uh, yeah, it, it's a fantastic athletic stadium, and uh, I've never been to a concert there, uh, but I'm told it's pretty decent for that as well. But it it's just not a football ground, and it's um it's really weird because of its positioning as well. It's right next to you know the biggest shopping centre in London in Westfield. Um, so, for example, West Ham aren't allowed to play at home on Boxing Day. Um, because it's the biggest shopping day of the year. That's bizarre. Um, yeah, and they can't they can't play their first two games of the season at home ever either because of because the the ground is multi purpose. It's used for athletics over the summer. So yeah, it's it's very strange. And a lot of the um, I mean we we kind of know places to go for a beer and stuff, but a lot of people don't. And a lot of the local kind of pubs they weren't really banking on a football team being there. Um, A lot of them set up with the Olympics in mind and, you know, because Stratford and Hackney Wick and places like that are are kind of becoming really redeveloped, quite bohemian areas, most of them don't really want a football team there. So um, loads of and they don't really need the business either because they've got plenty of young, rich, bohemian people paying like six pounds for two thirds of a pint and things like that so that they're not really keen on football crowds so like a lot of the pubs in the area don't even let football fans in they just they're not interested in that in that kind of custom Amazing. so we're a we're um, a long way from yeah. green street hooligans here tim yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is like the absolute polar opposite of what um upton park used to be like and upton park was one of my favorite grounds to go to just because it it kind of reminded me of highbury um it's it's right in the middle of a housing estate they you know you walk through some some narrow streets and it was quite cramped inside but it was you know there was there was a fair old bracket it was you know it was, it was a little bit of a throwback and uh, there aren't many of those grounds left anymore I, I think maybe everton is the the last like fairly sizable um kind of throwback ground and it's and it's one of my favorites for that reason but hmm. it's very difficult to get an atmosphere going inside the olympic stadium because it's so cavernous well, that and the football. Um, yeah. So, you know how, like, in some movies, like Harry Potter movies or whatever, there'll be, like, magic that prevents someone from being able to cross over, cross a threshold? <laughs> you would think that yeah. a running track would prevent Giroud from being able to cross the threshold onto the pitch. But it didn't prevent him from doing that. What did you make of the lineup? He went to the back four. He brought in Giroud, Lacazette, uh, left out. Um, I mean, yeah. at this point, I'm starting to think that Paul and Lacazette might be the same person. I've never seen them in the room together. They seem to have this fragility about them, their inability to just turn up. What's going on? <laughs> it, I, I thought, um, you know, not even being wise after the event, I thought it was a really weird lineup for a number of reasons. Uh, one, of, one of my kind of key criticisms of Arsene Wenger over the years has been that he doesn't really know how to rotate. Um, he's, you know, he can be quite good when he plays the same eleven every week. But 
when the time comes to rotate, he doesn't really know how to do that light rotation. It tends to be wholesale or nothing. And, uh, and, and you know, sometimes you have to do a little bit of wholesale or change four or five players. That's fine. Completely understand that. But what he really regularly fails to do when he does that is look at the team and go, right, let, let's at least like get some partnerships going. Like, let's look at who can play together. And uh, he really rarely does that. So in the end, you have like Nacho Monreal playing centre-half and then two centre-halves are left out and Ainsley Maitland-Niles plays at left-back. The, the only right-footer in the entire squad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you end up with this quite kind of lopsided diamond midfield. Where, and, and I get why he changed the midfield. I, I thought he might do that because without Ramsey... You know, Ramsey kind of has the energy to fill a forward role and a midfield role, and none of the other replacements do that. And that, and that emphasises how important Aaron Ramsey's become. When he's not there, we have to change the whole system. Um, and yeah, it, it just and then kind of Alexis and Özil behind Giroud, and and you know Alexis like really reined in this time in terms of trying that dink over the top. But actually, with Giroud up front, it probably makes a lot more sense to do that. And in many respects. I kind of just wish that we would have done what we did against Southampton um, on Sunday, which was just Alexis try that dink over the top interminably, interminably uh, ad nauseum, um, because it probably would have come off once with with Giroud up front as it did against Southampton. So it it was all it was all a little bit weird to be honest. I didn't I didn't quite get. Um, some of the changes. I, I think, for example, you can put Welbeck in for Lacazette and he's not as lethal in front of goal, but your team will do pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and, you know, I, I really didn't understand, um, you know, if you're going to give Ainsley Maitland-Niles a go, just give him a go in midfield um, and tuck him in with, with Jacker and Wilshere. I, th- I think in many respects that, that would be quite balanced. And then, you know, you can play Monreal at left-back and then, yeah, give Chambers a holding again. It it just basically it seemed to confuse everybody. And um yeah, I you know, but but that said, to be honest, I think he probably thought he saw the West Ham game against Chelsea, thought they're gonna put ten behind the ball again, so I'm just gonna try and put creative players in there. So, you know, we had Wilshire, we had a Wobi, we had Urzel, we had Alexis, we had um a passing midfielder at left back. Um you know, there, there should have been enough there to do more than we did creatively. Yeah, and, and I think this is another one of those tough games. You know, I, I have to say, like, I tend to get outraged about things pretty easily, as you know. And I'm, I'm struggling because usually my outrage comes from the fact that we struggle. I don't like games where we struggle to control a game we should be able to control or where we're on the back foot against teams we should be dominating What's a little harder is when we push teams back and back and back and back and can't knock the door down, can't create the the openings, that's where I have a little bit more sympathy because I think apart from the very, very, very best teams, a lot of very good teams struggle in those situations. Mm. But I just think we failed to move them around enough. You know, they sat in that low block and they got really, really deep and they did a little of the, the Burnley. They blocked a lot of shots. They crowded the area. They made it difficult for there to be shooting lanes i thought alexis actually got into a couple good positions where he just couldn't there was no way through you know we had a lot of shots blocked ultimately and they just frustrated us and so i have some sympathy with that but i think the thing you see tim now is that you know i realize i'm saying this one game after alexis provided Giroud with an equalizer but those Mm. two in particular don't seem like they can play together what did you make of the fact that this did push alexis up we've been talking about alexis dropping too deep and this moved him up the pitch a little Ball security became less of an issue, but he didn't seem to find comfortable spaces to operate. Do you attribute that mostly to Giroud? Uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, I, I think probably, to be honest, most of it is just that Alexis is a little bit out of form. Um, and instead, what we had, you know, when he was 40 yards from goal was some fairly wayward, hopeful balls into the box. And this time, you know, I think it's quite pointed and quite deliberate that we pushed him up the pitch. And Wenger said after the game on Sunday, you know, he said quite explicitly, we don't really want him 40 yards from goal. And this almost felt like a way of forcing him. And then, you know, it was almost like a giant hint, you know, it's like Alexis, we're going to put you pretty much up front and we're going to put Wilshire, Awobi and Ozil behind you. 
hint, hint, wink, wink. Um, and, and I think maybe he wait. I think maybe Wenger was trying to make that point a little bit too strongly. Because um, like I said, with, with Giroud up front, I actually think that's a much more viable tactic um, what Alexis has been doing in recent games. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is a bit of that. And, you know, he was he was kind of really out the, the on dink, the, the dink slash. over the top, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like out on the left slash a little bit up front alongside Giroud. And, and it does jar a bit. And, you know, I, I don't think you can really play Giroud against the team who's going to do that unless you're prepared to put balls into the box um, for him. Which, and in many respects, I would have been more okay with that if we'd have... You know, if we'd have chucked like twenty crosses in or something during the game and none of them worked, you'd say, I, you know, I think that's that's still pretty bad football, but it's it's something. I mean, Manchester um, United had a period where they it. played that way and they kind of got away with it. If I remember, sort of towards mm. the end of the United reign. But like, I, I guess my question is, if you're going to do that, who's going to run onto the second ball, right? I mean, yeah, if exactly. Alexis is out wide and you don't have Ramsey. Yeah. I mean, who who runs on? Is it Ozil? Is it Wilshire? I mean, those aren't guys you expect to come running onto the the second ball yeah. and putting putting it away. Exactly. That's that's exactly what we missed. We had like um, a lot of kind of ball carriers, but none of them who were going to go beyond the striker. Um, and if, if you're playing Giroud, that's, that's kind of exactly what you need, someone running beyond him, particularly if you're going to use him in this kind of back-to-goal scenario. Um, and what we just found again and again was playing the ball into the feet of Giroud, and then everyone just kind of stood there looking at him. Does it drive you um, as crazy as it drives me, though, that he will never turn? He does not back himself yeah. to be... Like, Giroud did get the ball provided to him in some interesting spaces, and his mm. his move is always a wall pass or a flick. Yeah. I mean, this was a game of a thousand flicks for Giroud. Like, he's got a... I think the biggest thing we lose, because Lacazette can play with his back to goal a little bit, but he is, mm. he is more elegant in the box in terms of his ability to turn and face. Like, is that the problem with Giroud, is that... If you get the ball to him in the box, other than onto his head, he doesn't create his own shots there. He's always yeah. looking to lay off. Yeah, yeah. He he needs a very specific type of service, basically. If you if you kind of float up in the air somewhere um, and have him kind of facing goal, then, then yeah, he's great. But yeah, exactly. You're right. He's not going to forge anything. And also, because he doesn't really, you know, work the channels, he's not going to move the centre-halves anywhere. And then that was exacerbated by the fact that none of it was... OB, Ozil or Wilshere are the kind of players who are going to make those runs beyond him. So, I mean, it's, it's not difficult to see why um, our game became so staid and so predictable. We had a very static striker, nobody making a second man run trying to confuse the defenders. I mean, we were just playing in front of West Ham and occasionally trying to pick the lock with Giroud. And you're right, he's not going to spin a, a defender. And then it becomes a kind of economies of scale thing because the defender knows he's not going to even try and spin. So he knows he can just like get up Giroud's backside and he does not have to be, you know, on his on his toes whatsoever. He knows exactly what's coming. It's totally predictable. Um, and it, and it, just, it just misses that kind of surprise factor where, you know, Lacazette, Lacazette has been has for me not impressed away from home. Um, well, the team haven't, but I, he I hasn't think he, has, he hasn't exactly had a lot of opportunities. No, no, but um, I mean, you could say the same for Giroud yesterday. You could make the same argument. Really, he didn't. He wasn't exactly handed many chances. My counter argument would be: we know what Giroud does for Arsenal. You know, yeah. like like we have a book on him. You know, we don't have a book mm. on Lacazette yet. At Arsenal. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. yeah, precisely. So really probably wanted Lacazette like trying to trying to move them around. But then again we had him against Southampton and Burnley and we you know, we, we didn't really look like breaking down either of those teams and he was subbed by the time we scored in both of those games. So I, I, I kind of get that. He's yeah. still acclimatizing. <clears throat> I I still think that it, it reminds me of a discussion we were having about 12 months ago when Arsenal kept fiddling around with the midfield and couldn't find anything that worked. And, you know, we were all saying on this podcast, look, just just give Ramsey and Xhaka a run together because it might not be perfect, but it's got a much higher potential upside than like Coquelin and Elneny or Coquelin and Ramsey or Elneny and Xhaka. Or um, Coquelin you know, and uh, Demigod <laughs> born to play midfield, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's like, 
there's at least a potential upside here that you put two quite talented players together and it might not be perfect but it might be something and 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 I feel that way about the front three I I just think we should be playing Alexis Ozil and Lacazette together as often as possible well there are three best players so you might as well yeah (laughs) yeah get that partnership going really really make them confident in one another and yeah it might be a little bit loose at times it might be a little bit improvised a little bit jazzy but it's just it just looks to me i mean we we're so we're so dull to watch away from home well, when when you when you compare i know i know they were a you know they were a real mess at the time but you compare like the movement and everything against everton um and to what we've been seeing recently and i i just i don't know i just feel like we've got to just let that three play together and because because it's it's the biggest possible upside that we that we can get into this team i think yeah and and look i mean i i think the point you can make also is see ironically i think games like this you might as well put alexis up front and and the problem Mm. is you know if we don't have and maybe the quality we we want the one thing about alexis and i realize he's horribly horribly out of form but you give it to him at the top of the box and he'll twist and he'll turn and he can turn either way and he can dribble a guy and he can move through tight spaces and you still give him a chance with a little bit of an opening to squeeze one past the keeper. Like I think sometimes against these these compact park buses, you have two choices. Battering ram, right? Ball, like pumping balls into the box like we did towards the end against Southampton or a dribbling battering ram, right? Someone who just keeps mm. trying to dribble his way through and you hope he makes one opening and it's enough. Um I mean, I, I don't know that we have enough slick, technical, intelligent, m- moving players in the side to pass our way through the team. And with Giroud, mm. you're not going to get the movement. You're not going to move them around because he's a focal point, right? So mm. you can be swinging passes laterally, left, right, you know, reversing the, the field, whatever. But if Giroud's just standing in the middle of the box the whole time, the, the center yeah. backs can just use that as their focal point. Um, it just didn't work. I, look, before we get any further in this specific match, and I think we should talk Jack Wilshire because I, I think he had a really interesting performance. I also want to talk about a Wobie who frustrates the hell out of me, and I want to kind of get your take on that. But really quickly mm. on Lacazette. Look, when Arsene loves a player, you can tell. Mesut Ozil arrived. Mm. From a situation in Real Madrid where he basically never played more than an hour. And Arsene mm. never dropped him and never subbed him. And Alexis yeah. arrived, and he never dropped him. I mean, I'm talking past the first, you know, three games. Never dropped yeah, him, yeah, yeah. never subbed him. Um, Lacazette has been dropped for every big game against Spurs at home. He is subbed at 60 minutes every game or 70 minutes every game. And what astounded me in this match is not only that he didn't start, put that aside, but that he came on with eight minutes to go. I mean, mm. you know, that that's when you bring on J. Emmanuel Thomas. Not, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, the yeah, yeah. I've, I've run out of ideas, so here, you try something. Like, not when you bring on your 50 million pound striker. We've talked about this with Shaka last season, and he sort of grew into becoming a, a first-choice player in every match, but I still have concerns that, that something is up with Arsene Wenger and his trust in Lacazette. Do you think it's purely a lack of trust in his physical ability to play in the Premier League game in, game out, or do you think there's something more at work? It's At the moment, I think the only evidence we've got to go on is physical, but I, I think you're quite right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's close to Christmas now, um, and this keeps happening. And, and you're right, usually, if a team is minded to kind of rotate one of their star players out, usually what happens is if it's nil-nil after like 55 minutes, 60 minutes, they're on, they're straight on, straight away, um, or the second the team gets in trouble, and you know, he brought Welbeck on first. And, you know, I like Danny Welbeck, but I, I just don't understand that. I mean, what what do you think Danny Welbeck's going to do against, on the right wing, against a 10-man defence? Like, he's he's not that likely to we score We just goal. saw he's, what he's going to do in, in that situation against Southampton. Whole bunch yeah. of fucking nothing. <laughs> and and by the gonna, way, worst Danny Welbeck appearance at Arsenal, in my opinion, that I've ever seen. I have never seen him worse than that. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really struggled of late, and 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 he's still struggling, which surprised me so much that he was the first one to come on. And and what like is he gonna like? He's got a lot of useful qualities, but picking the lock of a ten man defense, either creatively or by taking a quarter chance, like those aren't his qualities. Um, I I just found it really really odd. Um, 
and and yeah yeah like absolutely like just putting Lacazette on kind of on the wing with with eight minutes to go that's that that feels kind of quite pointed I, I don't know if it's just because we've got three games in a week and he doesn't think he's up to the the kind of physical intensity yet to be able to do that because he's rarely able to complete 90 minutes at the moment but yeah it it does feel a bit weird and you know we know like a bit of the history of Lacazette as well it's a signing we probably could have made two years earlier than we did if we really wanted to so you've always got that nagging feeling that he settled on him because you know he he just couldn't find anything else over a period of several years and he just thought right I've, I've got to pull the trigger on something um you know, he, he went for Vardy before he went for Lacazette, which, you know, um, so, yeah, it, it, it does it does feel a little bit pointed um, at this stage, particularly because, you know, Alexis is not in great form. Ozil was in great form, but the last couple of games hasn't really been up to much. Like, you, you know, he he should be like the star player after those two, really. And those two haven't been performing for the last few games. And, he still kind of feels like an afterthought, which, yeah, I, I, I think I think at this point you can you can really question why that is. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, Lacazette has has impressed me. I've liked him. I'm not going to say he's been incredible, but he's actually been, I think, better than I expected. Like, I, I think he's been good. But one of the ways that you acclimatize, one of the ways that you you know hit your stride is you play a lot. I mean, you you have to yeah. play with your teammates. You adapt to the league and. I just wonder if we're getting so stop-start with Lacazette here that it'll be hard for him to get in any kind of run of red-hot form. And the one thing about strikers, all strikers, they're streaky. I mean, there may be no streakier striker than Olivier Giroud, who can score a goal every match for 13 and then no goals every match for 20. But yeah. strikers are streaky. You know, there is confidence. I know people hate talking about confidence, but confidence plays into your finishing. It plays into your performance. And you want your strikers to get on a you know, good run of finishing in form and then play them constantly. And I, I just, I wonder if, you know, with Lacazette and the way he's being uh, used right now, it it's actually undermining his ability to hit his stride. Um, you know, and for Ozil and Alexis to, to develop that partnership with him because I would say up until the Southampton game, when the three of them have started together, it's mostly been encouraging. Um, mm. So, you know, it's, disapp- it's disappointing that's not happening. Look, I one of the interesting things about playing the back four is it... it kind of reminded you of all the scary things that you can see when we play in a back four, not that we don't see them in a back three. I was really interested in Nacho Monreal's performance. He's a player I adore. Mm. He's not a center back in a back four. And Mm. this is where I wonder if Arsene Wenger lets himself down a little bit is, you know, kind of not appreciating, maybe not, he doesn't appreciate them. He's a smart guy. He gets it. But overrating his players' ability to just be complete Swiss Army knives. Um, Mm. I thought Monreal struggled a little bit, and the thing that was interesting to me, Tim, is he was playing it like it was still a back three. At times, he was 35 yards from the West Ham goal. I mean, poor Koscielny's Achilles might have been, you know, asking to be subbed off. Like, are you concerned with seeing us in the back four kind of being reminded, oh, yeah, we don't have the positional discipline for this? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And also, you know, they've all been playing a back three for the last, you know, eight months now, so... Um, I appreciate they've switched in game on occasion, but that's usually when we're chasing a game and not doing very much defending. So it it stands to reason that it would take them a little while. And and Nacho's not he's never really been a centre half in a back four anyway. So you've got that added kind of apart from a very brief period about three years ago. I've never done this. Um, so and that's another reason why I thought it was it was such an odd selection, especially given the fact that Koscielny you know, the last couple of weeks is beginning to look his age a little bit. And he well, very would you have gone with one of the goal. young young center halves and moved Nacho to the to the fullback? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because by absolutely. the way, I thought Maitland Niles, after a little bit of a rocky start, kind of recovered. I mean, the one thing about him is yeah. much like Bellerin, he can run and run and run, and he's got tons of pace to burn. And the way we play, yeah. you need recovery pace to to save your ass, and he has it. Yeah, yeah, and also West Ham kind of left that side of the pitch alone. It was our right hand side. They're really crowded, um, which is why Maitland Niles. I think he put four crosses in, um, and I, I think that was largely because they kind of left him to his own devices. But yeah, he he was perfectly fine there, um, and, and that was quite encouraging. But yeah, I, I think Koscielny and Monreal that that just in a back four that just I don't know. It just I I I don't really get what Rob Holding's done. <laughs> um, 
at, at the moment. I know he's had like the odd, dod, you know, slightly dodgy game, but not. Well, this comes that back to, to the way Arson is, though. He's got his players he trusts, and he finds ways to use those yeah. players, right? I mean, there are certain players that if he's given the slightest opportunity, he's going to lean towards those guys. Monreal is certainly one of them. Olivier Giroud is mm. one of them. We've seen in the past Francis Cochran be one of them. He he wants to use the guys he wants to use. Yeah, yeah. And and I think but then, like, you put Ainsley Maitland-Niles into that equation for his first ever Premier League start. You know, it, it does, again, it feels quite pointed towards chambers and holding that that they're just not really trusted um at the moment and i i I get you know young players have peaks and troughs early in their career but it withholding it it's starting to feel almost chambers like you know where he just very very suddenly very quickly you know completely lost faith in callum chambers and it's beginning to feel a bit like that withholding i don't you know can i offer a possibility i mean is he looking at it and saying I'm going to have to start holding once this week. I'd rather start him at home against Newcastle than away. Yeah. I mean, could could it could that be the yeah, case maybe. that holding will come in for the for the home game, and so he didn't want to expose? I mean, if that's the case, yeah. you'd say, well, why expose Maitland Niles, who's even less experienced? Um, yeah. Isn't it also sort of a sign of sort of the problem with the construction of the squad that none of us would argue that Kolasinac probably needed to be taken out of the firing line, that he his mm. performances had really dipped, but that the only option that was left to us with Nacho at center back, is a youth player who hasn't played yeah. the Premier League at all. I mean, that's really the problem, right? We don't, and we've talked about this in other pods, there are players that maybe need to be sat down or need to be taken out of the firing line, but there's no quality alternative waiting for them. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And and I mean, another, what might have been in his thinking with Holding was, well, Holding has only ever played for Arsenal in a, in a back three bar that, Barte game the other week which you know for, for an Arsenal centre-half was little more than a training exercise um, so you know maybe he was thinking that maybe he was thinking well look I'm defending I'm changing the defensive shape so I'm going to go with my most two most experienced centre-halves to, to try and countenance that but yeah I don't know it, it just doesn't feel like a, a massive vote in confidence you know this this Rob Holding who played in the FA Cup final um, against the likes of Diego Costa and Eden Hazard, he, and you know, playing against Man City, and you know, he trusted him to do that um, when he had other options, um, but he he didn't trust him to do that. It, it, it yeah, it, it, yeah, it feels well. And it, and to be fair, that was in the back three, you know, so maybe yeah, he felt yeah. he had a little more protection there. I, I mean, yeah. it, it's hard to kind of read it, read Arson's mind at this point. What I will say is that, um, you know, it. it He's going to have to do some rotating, and maybe, just maybe, he felt he could get away with a young fullback and experienced center back mm. in this one, and he'll bring in the young center half for the home game. Um, I want to get yeah. to the attacking half of the pitch and, and talk Awobi and Jack Wilshire. Um, before we do that, I want to get to Scott and get the, the statistical section in here. But, Tim, as a final thought, once again, Theo Walcott left out, a player that I think mm. we maybe could have used this day um, to have someone who's playing on the, you know, the last shoulder who could make those runs. Um, he had the best game of, of recent memory in the Europa League, and I admit against horrendous opposition under no pressure, and hasn't even been in the match day squad since. Is this mm. is this ominous? Is he is he off? Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know. And then he, he had that cold a few weeks ago, which seemed to keep him out for about three weeks. Um, to be, to be fair, Mesut Ozil is about to get his too. It's usually, usually <laughs> late December, early yeah, January. Yeah, yeah. true. Yeah. But um, if Theo Walcott can't even get on the bench when we've switched to this system, then, yeah, I, I think the writing's totally on the wall. Um, you know, I, I think in January he, he'd probably like to keep Giroud around, but with Walcott, I, I think this is a kind of um, almost trying to push him out the door because it seems like Theo's quite happy um, and he's, you know, quite happy... I don't want to cast too many aspersions. So he's quite happy picking up his wage, but he, he's probably not going to get paid somewhere else. Like I think he'd rather play. So I mean, I think yeah, he'd rather yeah, yeah. play. I mean, to be fair yeah, to Theo, he didn't do like... anything to create this situation. I mean, he played yeah, against yeah, Bate. Yeah. He dominated. He was the best player on the pitch, and he can't get in the yeah. squad. Yeah, I, I don't think he's bogarding us um, or anything, but he might have fallen into a bit of a comfort zone and just you know. Yeah. But you know, mo- most most people wouldn't go and do. 
the same job somewhere else for less money no matter how much they're earning so um you're right it's not his making he was given that contract but i do wonder if arson's trying to force the issue here a bit and just kind of saying look you're not in the plans and um if you want to sit around and 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 pick your money up that's fine but you're, you're not really going to be part of the team and the, the thing is arsenal have to generate some cash because alexis is going urzel is going Kazola has not been replaced Koscielny is aging, Czech is aging, Monreal is aging. We are not getting a penny for any of these players, not one of them. We will not get a single penny for any of them. Um, so we need to generate cash. And yeah. Walcott, at the moment, is is a sellable asset. And if someone like... I, I don't know how likely it is that we'll get rid of him on anything other than a loan deal, um, certainly in January. But he's, he's one of our sellable assets and I think at the moment someone like Reese Nelson could be looking at Theo Walcott's current role in the squad which is you know occasionally on the bench occasionally not and Reese Nelson should be looking at that role and saying well yeah I could do that next season um, I could be the kind of the 19th guy as it were um, but when you've got like you know Alexis and Ozil not in great form Welbeck's not in great form he hasn't, you know, this was the first time he'd started Olivier Giroud this season and and Walcott still couldn't even get on the bench. I think that tells you quite a lot. Yep, yeah, and especially in a back four. Where, so you can't even say, mm. well, the system just doesn't suit him. You referenced that. So, yeah, I agree with you. Look, let's do this. We're going to talk to Scott. We'll hear all about our impotence, our sterility, all those things that my doctor has been giving me some solutions for. Maybe I can give Arson some solutions for them as well. Um, okay, when we come back, Clive will be on, and then we can talk some real football. Here we go. Okay, so Scott is here. You can find Scott on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. You can find his work at crabstats.blogspot.com. And uh, if you're new to the podcast, Scott gives us a little bit of a, a data statistical perspective on the match. Um, we are not going to break down the goals in this segment because uh, we didn't score any. But that doesn't mean there isn't great data to look at to tell us just went wrong. Uh, what went wrong in the attacking half, Scott? What went wrong? Uh, just about everything. Um, okay, so overall, it was good talking to you. <laughs> overall, the the XG for the match was one point one nine for Arsenal and two for or point two for West Ham, um, and then point nine in the the shots model and point four. So overall, didn't miss much if you didn't miss the if you missed the game. Uh, not a lot of shots, not a lot of good chances. Arsenal took twenty two shots but had an average XG of just 0.04, which is well below the average of 0.11 per shot that they've averaged this season. And a lot of that went down to West Ham sitting in their, their low deep block and not contesting the midfield. Okay, so uh, in terms of the the way we attacked, obviously we weren't creating quality chances. The chances we got were lower quality. Um, they didn't create a whole hell of a lot, but we didn't either. So probably a fair result uh, on that measure. But what are you seeing that indicates to you that they kind of abandoned midfield and set deep? So I have a, a thing where I look at the, the defensive actions that each team does. So that, you know, fouls, tackles, interceptions, um, and all sorts of um, dispossessed um, of those kinds of certain things. And West Ham had just seven defensive actions total in the, the middle third uh, seeing with how many times Arsenal passed in the middle third, uh, the passes per defensive action were over 20, which is really showing that West Ham sat really deep off the ball. They only had one defensive action in Arsenal's defensive third. So, so can I stop really you for a minute? Because, for example, yes. teams that press, right, like like a Liverpool or, or a Spurs, for example, they'll have like uh, the, the number of passes per defensive action of their opponent will be what, like six or seven, something like that? That's correct. And so you're saying in the midfield, the passes per defensive action for West Ham were in the 20s? Yes, there was, I think, 25. I don't have okay. the, the right so number. So that kind of gives you a, a good contrast, right? Like a pressing team might give you seven passes before they commit a, a defensive action. West Ham was giving us 20, 25 or so. So very, very low pressure in the middle of the field. Exactly. So a lot of that, so that will lead to Arsenal having 67% of the total touches. So there's a, you know, looking at the different ways to calculate possession about 70% of the possession. Um, but a lot of that was very sterile possession. So they did have um, 43 touches in the box, but that was only 11% of the final third touches that Arsenal had. 
So a lot of that in that U-shape around the box. And then of the 43 touches that Arsenal had in the box, just 16 came in the danger zone. Um, And I consider the danger zone the six-yard box plus the center of the 18-yard box. Um, And then breaking it down even further, looking at from the penalty box or the penalty spot in, Arsenal only had five touches there. So as we get closer and closer to goal, Arsenal are getting less and less touches. Um, Making this even worse is that the touches that they were getting in these good locations, they were not converting them into shots. So normally in the danger zone, Arsenal can convert about 60% of their touches into shots. And inside of the penalty zone in towards the goal, they convert almost 70% of those touches into shots. In this game, just 25% of the danger zone touches were shots and just 40% inside of the penalty spot to goal wait, wait, were wait, shots. Wait, I, I smell a Giroud influence. How many of those touches were Olivier? <laughs> um, he had um, about 60% of both of the danger zone and the shots um, or and the touches inside of the penalty area. So what you're telling the- me is that Giroud plays with his back to goal, gets the ball, lays it off, flicks it. He doesn't turn and shoot. So in other words, Giroud was occupying the areas where ordinarily we'd get shots. And when he was getting the ball there, he wasn't getting shots. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So he had um, two shots total in the danger zone and one shot in the penalty area to the goal. And yeah, so he had a total of 11 danger zone shots or danger zone touches. So he was really just ineffective in converting his possession into offense. So he um, and shot a lot of those about a th- and passes did not come off either. So yeah. it was a lot of, you know, turning the ball over in that spot and not converting that dangerous attempts into anything. So in other words, basically to sum it up, essentially, he turned his touches in those danger zones into about a third of the amount of shots that we'd expect on average from when our players have touches in those areas. Exactly. So uh, if you were watching the game, I think that's about what you would have expected to. So the stats really back up what we saw. Uh, Yeah. And I wonder if some of that's also the loss of Ramsey. I mean, Ramsey arriving late secondary runs, you know, a lot of times he's the one getting those touches and and putting in shots from the danger zone. I think Lacazette, obviously, because he turns and faces and he runs in behind when he gets the ball in those areas, he's already facing and he can shoot. And, you know, it's just a reminder that what Giroud wants to do is he wants to collect the ball in the danger zone, but then bring in a teammate. He's not creating his own opportunities. And it's very, 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 very hard, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, to complete passes in those areas of the pitch. It definitely is. So, yeah, I mean, how many times have we seen him try to, you know, recreate that Norwich goal with the, the flicks? But the reason that that was such an amazing goal is because it's so hard. And those kinds of things don't come off all the time. And I think that defenders know that that's what he's going to try. And they crowd it out. There you go. Um, so I mean, another thing yeah, that ahead. I did want to, to touch on here is so I know we're, we're slagging off Giroud here a little bit. But um, I also think that there's been a pretty big change in the way that Alexis um, has been attacking. Um, so his um, number of touches in the box is down significantly this season compared to last season. So last season... He was averaging over seven touches in the box per game. And this year, he's down to just over five. Um, And then also, his touches, even inside of the danger zone, has gone way down. So last year, it was over one per game. And now it's down to 0.5 per game. So he has spent a lot more time outside of the box and in the wide areas instead of getting into dangerous spots to create offense for him. So he might be looking for other players, but he is definitely not doing as good of a job getting himself into positions to shoot this year. So to sum it up, you have a center forward who isn't taking shots when he's in the area you need to, and you have arguably your best player and certainly best goal scorer not getting into the positions to score goals, and all of a sudden you can see why you wind up with a nil-nil draw. Uh, It makes a lot of sense. Real, real, real quick before we let you go, and I know we are both under extreme time pressure here. Um, Do you happen to have PPVA up in front of you from the match? Just curious uh, if Jack Wilshire, I mean, he caught the eye. Did he catch the statistical eye? Yeah, so um, he actually had a really good game. Um, Part of this is um, due to the midfield not being contested, um, but he had a, I believe it's the, the, let me count here, uh, the fifth best game for Arsenal. Um, in terms of passing value added? Yeah, so he had a, a .27, so that's behind Hector Bellerin, Alexis, Ainsley, Maiton, Niles, and Mesut Ozil. Mm-hmm. Um, on a, a, a per 50 passes, um, he was fourth. Okay. So, 
overall, he had a, a pretty good game, um, I would say. Um, I, I did notice that the, the split between the halves uh, was pretty significant. Um, in the first half, he was a lot better. Um, but it looked like about after that 60, 70 minute mark, um, he kind of dropped off some. So it could just be playing 90 minutes is, is tough for him. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I thought he looked good. The stats say that he passed pretty well. And yeah, we don't want to leave on a down note just picking on Giroud. I mean, I do, but, you know, we can't do that for the listeners. So in any event, uh, Scott's on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. You can find his stuff on crabstats.blogspot.com. Scott, uh, hope that we have uh, many, many, many multitudes of goals to break down after the Newcastle match. Yep. Yep. All right. We'll talk to you then. Cheers. Bye. Okay. Well, Again, these stat sections do a great job telling you what we already knew, which is we didn't do a great job attacking their goal, we didn't score any goals, and it wasn't a lot of fun. So, Clive is on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Welcome on, Clive. Hello, hello. Great, you're off to a flyer. Um, Anyway, um, (laughs) I am starting to wonder what's the point of Alex Awobi, and I hate to kick players, young players, developing players. On the ball, he reminds me of Oxlade Chamberlain a little bit. On the ball, you see this flash of talent. He'll have a surging run through the midfield. He'll have a couple of very quick, close-control touches to get out of trouble, and you think, yeah, that's it. And then he will just use the ball so poorly. Much like Oxlade-Chamberlain, he switches off, off the ball, and he uses the ball so poorly. There was a period late in the game where Alexis Sanchez ran the length of the pitch to defend in his own area and make a key-saving tackle, and he ran right past a walking Alex Awobi. Um, there, there was a whole hour of the match where Hector Bellerin might as well have sat down and had a beer because Awobi just never looked, never gave him the ball. Clive... What is Awobi's role for us right now? What does he need to do to start influencing these games a little bit more? Well, you, you could have stopped the question at what is Iwobi? What, what is Alex Iwobi? No idea. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as soon as you start to get into that sort of questioning, you're in, you're, you're in problems. And then you've got to say to yourself, okay, have we got the manager and the coaching infrastructure to, to bring him on? And I... I'm generally concerned. I had my Iwobi rant about three, four weeks ago. And, um, and the reason oh, that why was the, I, I, your I da one, right? Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I'll get it. Uh, <laughs> but what I, I said it was unfair. It was unfair because it wasn't really much to do with football. It was more to do with his focus and his approach. And I sometimes feel we judge people on our exposure to the players. And sometimes we see things online and we, and we judge them. But with Iwobi, I try to keep it about what I see on the pitch. And what I see on the pitch is somebody... That's a halfway player. He's a half forward, or he's a half midfielder, or he's a half winger, or he's a half central player. But come the moment in the game, no matter how he's deployed, I'm not sure he feels his role that he needs to provide on the day. And what I saw at West Ham, I'm not sure what Tim said so far, but Jack came into the game, he he solidified his role. And when I saw Iwobia, if, if, if there was a heat map, it must have been three yards away from Jack. So straight away, we are narrow. We have no width. We have no purpose. So is that his fault as a young player? And when the teams lined up in the tunnel and the back three players were Jack, Maitland-Niles and Iwobi, I felt a sense of pride that we got three academy players going out in a premiership game. But then I'm thinking, OK, Maitland-Niles, you're playing left back. Iwobi, you're playing right, right forward. Is that really your spot? And the only one that was really his rightful place was probably Jack. Even that's debatable. So I wonder about him. Technically, he dances. He dances around the ball. He doesn't give me any conviction. I don't think he works hard enough. I think he walks. And the reason why I, I pick on him a little bit is because I just think he has it all. I think he has it all. Or when he's hot, when he's motivated, when he's feeling confident. I think his his level could be really high, but right now, I'm not sure I want him anywhere near the team. I just I'm just not sure. I think he's really slowing us down. I don't trust him. I just don't trust him, and I hate saying that about young players that have come through 
uh, Kazmin since they're eight years of age. But I really worry about him if he's getting coached correctly, if he's given the right instruction, if he's being managed appropriately. Uh, I'm just not sure he is. And, and, you know, look, we are a team that already has it in our DNA to be poor off the ball, to be too ball-oriented, to not not understand space, not know where we need to be, not be positionally disciplined. And so we can't afford to start bringing in players who are the worst of that, who switch off off the ball. That's why I hated Oxlade-Chamberlain. Switched off off the ball, didn't understand how to, how to bring his teammates into the game. Um, you know, and the, the interesting thing is just that, you know, it's, I look at a guy like Cesc Fabregas. Cesc Fabregas didn't have a single physical skill that he was born with. I mean, obviously, immense... Uh, talent at passing a football but what I mean is he's not super strong he's not super big he's not super fast his feet weren't super quick yep. he's not agile he sees the football pitch he, he, two seconds before everything happens you know they say what well, he, he takes the pictures and he sees the pictures and he he knows where people are going to be before they're there well, Wobie's like the opposite he's he's strong when he wants to be he has a burst when he needs it his feet are quick and agile and he doesn't see anything happening on the pitch. Or re- he's very reactive. He's a very reactive player. Um, and it's it's a problem. And, uh, you know, I, I think the fact that he failed to use Bellerin at all really hurt us. When Bellerin finally started to get involved in the game late, we had a few of our best moves. Um, but, I mean, look, I, I don't want to kick Awobi too much. I mean, Tim, do you have any quick coda yeah. to that on, on Awobi's role in the squad? And, and yeah, you know, does yeah. he have one? <laughs> I. I actually thought he played really well in the first half. Um, I thought he that had those th- highlight moments, right? He had that one really sparkling run. I can't, you know, the one I'm thinking of that surging. Yeah, run. yeah, yeah. And he hit the post. But I, actually, yeah. I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking more about the way he linked up um, the two areas of the pitch. So the reason I think he was there was kind of to babysit Jack because Jack's not, or you know, Wenger had some some wild place doubts about how much Jack could cover the ground and carry the ball forward over 90 minutes. Now, I mean, Awobi's big problem is that he fades um, and he faded um, quite badly in the second half just before he came off. In the first half, I I thought he was joining up play really nicely. um, Actually, I thought he was nice and strong. I thought he won the ball back a few times and kind of created a few, a few transit potential transitions for us. But I think overall, the way I would summarise the issue with Awobi, and it, it's not one that worries me because I think you see this a lot with players his age, of his type. When he plays as a number 10, he looks like a number 8. And when he plays as a number 8, he looks like a number 10. So he's not quite sure what he is yet, basically. He's not quite decisive enough to be a 10. Um, <laughs> to be a 10, yeah. but at the same time... He's a, half, when, he's a, half, he's a halfway player, he's- yeah, he is at the moment. He's not quite one or the other. You have yeah, to have end product. And this to be is where I think he needs some. Let's let's all give our opinion at once and see direction. which one we can hear. <laughs> Sorry, man, <laughs> but, but Tim, I I know where Tim's going. He needs to either be strong in one role or the other, mm. so we can see him and mm. recognize him and judge him accordingly. So, Tim, your point actually is is really valid. On the ball, he wasn't too bad, but I mm. want him to be eight yards further wider. Because that's what the team needed on the day. And so I'm now judging him on his feeling for the game, not for his technical skill. His feeling for, if he felt the game, he wouldn't have come inside and been wider because that's what the game required. Now, maybe that's a bit much to ask for a young player, but that's what I'm hoping for because he can play wide, he can play inside. That's a talent. Can he apply himself appropriately? Tim, what's your opinion on a Wobby? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I, th- I I just wonder on this occasion if he was instructed to, at least at the beginning of the game, to kind of sit in with Wilshere yeah. a little bit. Maybe he was told to tuck in and just be like, look, I, I, I could see the both of you, you know, playing a wall pass and, and, you know, getting us moving quite nicely. But, you know, Wenger might have had, as I do, uh, or, you know, as doubts over whether Wilshere can really do that ball carrying thing over 90 minutes as as it turned out I think I'm sure we'll come on to this as it turned out I think Wilshere looked pretty good at that and I, so I think you've got a point there Clive in that after about 55-60 minutes when it was apparent that Wilshere was doing just fine physically maybe at that point um, but you know it depends on what the manager's instructions are but maybe at that point he can go right actually Jack looks alright here um, I can I can go and help 
help Bellerin get down the line. Let me. So let's yeah, let's, separate, get, let's come on to Jack. From the center. Yeah, let, let's yeah. come on to Jack. I mean, look, I can only say what I see. I can't say what other people want to hear. I mean, I can. I'm not going to do that. Um, I think I've proven that. Like, I can't. I can't help it. I saw a really good performance from Jack Wilshire. I thought he was really, really good. I thought he was press resistant. I thought he broke the press well. I thought he rode the challenge as well. I thought he was strong. I thought he had more of the burst than I expected. His range was better than I expected. He showed some of the touch and technique that I thought had maybe left his game. He really grew in the game. Now, do I think he needed to vary his passing a little, that he is still too much caught up in the one-touch, ticky-tacky, edge-of-the-box kind of passes? Maybe, but... This was not a great performance from the team, and I thought he stood out. I mean, Tim, did he catch your eye? Did he stand out in a way you weren't expecting? Yeah, yeah, he did a bit. I, I tell you um, how, actually, it was his uh, his defensive contributions that really stood out for me. Um, he had a, t- a, in terms a big of, two-footed tackle where he got the ball late that was just crucial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he had a lot of interceptions as well. And actually, I thought, yeah, I, I thought... Um, he played with a kind of intelligence that um, I, I don't always associate with Jack. Um, and, and I thought it was very encouraging. Because the thing is with Jack, right, it, it, I don't think his athleticism will ever quite come back. It might, um, but I'm not sure it will. And so, you know, when he was younger, it was very much, give me the ball and I'll go forward with it. I'll knock it about. I'll, I'll pop up everywhere. And I don't think he can do that anymore. And he's going to have to adjust to that. And uh, one, of, one of the things I think he's going to have to do is pick his moments to go forward, uh, to really have a good read of the game and think, right, there's a bit of space there. I'm going to go for it now because I can't do this 15 times a game anymore. I can only do it two or three, um, but I've got to pick my moment. And, uh, and actually, I, I thought he did that quite well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was actually quite encouraged because, I you know, over, over the last kind of couple of months, there's been such a you know, such a kind of desire from the fan base to see him. And I really think a lot of his performance has been over-exaggerated. Totally agree. Um, but, but, but he, yeah, he was, he was, um, he was, he was very decent. And, uh, you know, he, again, we, if we're talking about his long-term future, we're really going to have to work out what kind of role he can have. And I think, you know, watch very closely as to whether he gets picked again on Saturday. Does, does Arsene think, that he can play, he can start two matches in three days. I guess that he doesn't at the moment, um, and he might hold him back for that that other West Ham game in the Carabao Cup. But yeah, I, I thought this was encouraging because I was very much getting to the stage of, of writing Jack off, really. Um, and this has kind of given me a bit of pause for thought. If you're asking me to put money down, I'd, I'd say I still don't think he's going to get a new contract. But... Um, I'm not as sure as I was kind of 36 hours ago, put it that way. We play Liverpool at the Emirates on Friday, and I, I think there's a good chance, a Friday of next week, I think there's a good chance we, we will see Jack in that game and not again until that game. I mean, the thing this performance did is it made it pretty clear to me that he is the Ramsey replacement or Ramsey is out, um, that Awobi's not good enough to be that guy, and I unfortunately think we still have to, handle jack with kid gloves but like it's encouraging look this could be a blip i have been of the opinion that jack is done and his arsenal career is done i have to admit this changed my opinion there was a moment where he was kind of bracketed in midfield he received the ball in the half turn the way he can and burst away from them and just contrasting that against shaka who has the turning range of a you know a tractor trailer you know semi-truck and like you know gets the ball and after seven touches he's oriented in the direction he wants to be and if it's on his left foot he can make a really sexy pass if he's under no pressure like it was nice to see that from jack he looks light on his feet again he looked he looked like he felt comfortable you know under the the pressure and under the challenges in the premier league i mean clive i don't want to overhype this but it's hard not to be at least a little bit excited by a player that i was ready to throw in the scrap heap uh, and me too. I've got no point. I've got no shame in saying I, I. I heard he was done, not just at Arsenal, but at the top level of football, and that's what I heard. And I, I believed it, and I was very sceptical about him. And and Tim goes through all the games, and within five or ten minutes, the fans are calling his name. I'm thinking, come on, just get serious. But this game was a real, a real place you could judge. And um, West Ham were decent in centre midfield. I thought he was strong in the challenge. I thought he was strong in possession. I thought he felt the game. He knew when to be deep. He knew when to go and join. I, I, I thought 
and I always look at when players give you the ball and everyone was giving him the ball and I felt he you know I, I know Ozil's also a very strong personality on our pitch but I thought the two of them looked like those were the two players that the other players trusted to keep it and to get us going and I thought his personality was growing within the game I was hugely impressed and for me that's his best game back by a mile yeah. I just thought he was tremendous leadership wise did, did it did it lead you to think that maybe he can play in central midfield I think one of our points we've made on this pod is whatever future is left for him is closer to the to the box is, is more as one of the two behind the striker did this give you at least pause to consider him as a possible central midfielder again Absolutely, there was a. And what he, what impressed me was not what he did when he was hot, because you know what Jack's like; he knows the game. But when he was tired and he was struggling, he had a couple of possessions where he's got the ball, and he's protected it with his backside and just pushed people off. Bang! Then he made he found the defensive side of his game, as Tim alluded to, later on. Offensively, he was strong; he's always strong. But defensively, he built a trust, and we we worried about his mobility. We worried about what Ramsey does with his with his marathon running ability and metronomic movement. We thought Jack can't do that. But what Jack did is he picked his moments to target collisions and he made collision tackles that were almost like play making tackles. And I thought that's a smart he's a smart player. He does it differently, but he controls that space. And I'm a big fan of centre midfielders being in centre midfield. And so stylistically he suits my eye more than, than Ramsey does. While I recognise belatedly, maybe I've been very critical of Ramsey historically, but I can see the player that he is now. But stylistically, I, I really like how Jack played last night. I thought he, I thought he was very good. Yeah, and, and I, I think... Um, yeah, go ahead, Tim. Sorry, I was, I was just going to add two things. One good and one maybe to to bring it down a little bit. Um, he, he had the best pass completion of all of the players on the pitch, which... I think it's significant given how often this season we've been guilty of giving the ball away um, in dangerous areas. He really looked after it. But I think the caveat is that West Ham pretty much conceded the midfield altogether. So perhaps this wasn't the stiffest test for him. Nevertheless, it's still, I think he's earned a shot at maybe a stiffer test, if that makes sense. It, it does. Tim, do you think he faded late on? I thought he dropped away a little bit late on. And, Only a little um, he, bit. but Only a touch, not, but just didn't quite have it late on, would you think? Yeah, but not, not nearly as much as... Like that Norwich game in the Carabao Cup, I thought he was done in the second half, basically. I agree. I agree. And quite a lot of Europa League games, I've been thinking... About the 60-minute mark, I've been thinking, mm, yeah, you, you've kind of had enough now. Um, but he looked he looked stronger in this game to me than any other game yeah. I've seen in this season. I can just caution you for a minute as as a top top level athlete myself. It's not necessarily <laughs> in the heat of the moment when you see the problem. It's how you recover. Recovery is the measure of a top level athlete. And so the question isn't how he felt on the pitch during that game. It's how do you feel the next day? How does he feel the day mm. after that? Does his body mm. recover? Can his body get back to being ready to be at the top level again within three days or within a week? Yeah. Um, look, he I, might have he might have rigor mortis today, but um, on, that's my on favorite pitch, show. Was, by the he, way, he was good. Fantastic show. <laughs> But I think I think I think he really embarrassed Iwobi, and that's the thing that concerns me. I thought he worked harder than him. Somebody younger, just fitter, just had no big injury, and, I, and I'm concerned he's lasting better than Iwobi. Well, and yeah, I mean, look, the the, the reality is it wasn't a, a vintage performance for anyone, and Jack stood out. And I don't think he just stood out because other players were crap. I think he was genuinely good. Look, I, I think Danny Welbeck. You know, obviously he had a stinker. Um, Iwobi, I think. You know, especially in the second half, I agree with Tim that the thing that was good about Awobi is he's press resistant and he helped us, you know, break the press and get out of trouble early on um, at a period that could have been a little tricky. Eventually, you know, the thing about this game is it's easy to kick us and say we were terrible. We pushed them back and back and back and back, and towards the end of the game, they were all the way into their box. I just think that's where you know we the, we lacked we lacked the quality, um, and then that's been the, that's been the story away from home, and that's been the story of the last two games. Uh, you know, a, a final thought here is that, you know, Alexis got subbed off. That's what everyone's been asking for. He's terrible. He's terrible. Drop him, sub him. But ultimately, Tim, I didn't see us do anything with Alexis off the pitch that blew my hair back. I, had, I acknowledge it wasn't no. a long period of time. I mean, as bad as he's been, and I totally admit he's out of form, 
you still would have backed him to be the one to find a decisive moment, right? I mean, do you think that was the wrong yeah. call? Yeah, I do a little bit. Um, I, I kind of tend to think if you're going to do that, do it on about 70 minutes and, you know, completely, you know, give him the hint that you want to give him and, you know, completely change the setup of the team if you must and do something different. Doing it with eight minutes to go, just kind of, it, it felt a bit pointless um, by then, to be honest. And and like you said, he wasn't really much worse than he was against Southampton. But in the 87th minute against Southampton, he was able to produce something. And um, I tend to think he was playing on the instruction not to keep, you know, not keep doing that, that dinked over the top through ball. And he, he looked to me a little bit like, He's not been playing that well anyway, but he's still been producing. Whereas last night, he just kind of looked like he looked like he was out of form, and he he didn't look like producing anything either. But yeah, I I do think it was uh, like I say, bring him off on sixty five seventy minutes, or it it just felt a bit like a gesture. And then to put Lacazette on the left wing with eight minutes to go, I mean that it it just felt pointless. Um, yeah, at that point. And it's, I think it's a bit symptomatic of what Wenger's been doing for the last couple of years, which is he doesn't really have a clear vision of what this team is and how it plays. And what he's trying to do now is every couple of months, he's just trying to shock them into something. So it's like, oh, I'll go to a back three because I don't know what else to do. And now that's bedded in and that's not new anymore. It's like, oh, we'll go back to a back four and, and oh, I'm going to bring Alexa. It, it just feels like he's been reaching um and, yeah. and this felt you know this this felt a little bit like that like he was just like oh yeah. I, I tried to drop him in march and that didn't work and you know oh, i'm gonna kind of take him off i guess and make a bit of a point but it, it all just feels a bit halfway house it doesn't feel like a plan and again we talk about being reactive versus proactive it feels very reactive and i mean I think this is where Arson gets himself in trouble. When he gets into a rocky patch, sometimes he starts going down strange roads to try to solve the problem. And so my question to you, Clive, to wrap this up, with Newcastle at the Emirates uh, on Saturday, it's a chance to get back on the right side of the ledger. And I, I mean, I could see us beating them 5-0, 6-0, 7-0 if we get it right, because even in these games where we've been poor, we've been dominating possession, we've been controlling the ball in the, in the final third. So is the trick here for the manager not to try to be too clever. Alexis, Lacazette, Ozil, put the best players on. We've been scintillating at home. Get a win, get a big win. You know, rotate completely for Carabao Cup. We need to start pointing in the right direction ahead of Liverpool coming to the Emirates. And that starts by getting our mojo back in the final third. I mean, would you just go back to the best players and trust them to, to figure it out at home? Yeah, well, there, there's a first 11 that we can all name. And there's a formation that we debate, but I like the three at the back. Not because I like three at the back. It's just that I like three at the back for this group of players. Because I think it just covers the pitch and I think we just look more balanced. But only for that first 11. And maybe Jack has made it 12. You know, but the rest, I'm not sure. I was disappointed in Welbeck massively, massively. I think he, um, I'm not sure what sort of health he's in. I was watching very closely. He didn't look very fit. He looked like he was carrying his leg like a suitcase. Not not happy about him at the moment. That's a worry. Offensively, we have problems because Theo's out the door, Jeru's a lamppost, and Welbeck's running with a limp. I love you. I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm I'm concerned. I'm really concerned about our offensive power, and um and what options we have. And I don't see any. We've got um midfield options we can debate we've got wing back options we can debate we've got multiple set of halves but I'm worried about our offensive power and the health of them and the, and the state of them mentally because the Sanchez looks like he's in departure lounge so I'm 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 concerned but Newcastle if we don't win that this podcast needs to double in length by next week because <laughs> it'll be it'll be an eruption right so um so we hopefully win that it's all about Liverpool in the 22nd and um that's the game to um, yeah. really focus on. Look, I've, I have tried to be, I think, measured in my response to these games. They're away games. They're against packed defenses. They were not good performances. You're right, though. Newcastle at the Emirates, a place where we've been very, very good. The manager has to get it right. He has to pick the players that can make the decisive involvement, and we have to do it because when Liverpool come to the Emirates, look, 
We're one point back of a top four spot. As bad as it's been, I still favor us for that. But this is the period now where no more fucking around. We've got to defend our home pitch because our our away form has been so dodgy. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I think that is a bellwether game for us in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, unfortunately it comes on the heels of, of two draws, but... We're not off the rails. We're we, you know we're not off the rails. We've seen other big clubs stumbling. There's a lot of flawed teams out there. The goal is in the title. We're 19 points adrift of the title. Like it is what it is. The goal is to get back in the top four, and it's still very much alive. So let's not throw our toys out of the pram until Saturday uh, evening. In any event, uh, thanks to Clive for jumping on late. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Uh, Tim is of course on Twitter at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Paul will be back probably around the same time, Lock, as that is. And uh, uh, we'll see what happens there. In any event, give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about all of us. We're all terrible people. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Newcastle nil.